0: Is there moral truth? Is there some foundation for ethical beliefs that all of us can agree to?
1: There was one man in modern American history who concluded from a prison cell that there was a law we have to live by, both written and unwritten.
0: My uncle, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., wrote a letter when he was incarcerated in Birmingham, Alabama. There was a lot of strife and racial tension there. Black people, we were called Negroes in those days, were being slaughtered, literally. And so it was during these times that my uncle was leading the protest and saying that this was really unjust. During my uncle's lifetime, when he had to consider whether he would obey the law or disobey the law, If the law of the land was something that was going to harm what he called the least of these, then he would go to the higher law, the divine law, the natural law. Dr. King would always say, if a law is unjust, it is our moral responsibility to resist the unjust law. And that is the basis of the civil rights movement.
1: According to the tradition of natural law, there are great moral truths including
0: truths about the fundamental dignity of human beings that while revealed in scripture are also
1: at least in principle
0: knowable by reason itself
1: What i think king proves more than anything else that there is a truth which is knowable and one of the things that's crucial here if we're going to rebuild any kind of an ethical consensus in our common lives together is that we agree there is some standard that we're going to live by. So truth has got to be knowable for there to be ethics.
0: So if you say that um, uh, it's always wrong to torture children for the fun of it, that statement is true. And it's true in every culture. It's true whether we want it to be true or not. It's simply dead on true. If there were no truth or if we couldn't know it, life, ordinary life would be virtually impossible.
1: Let's assume the moral relativist is correct. There is no truth. What happens to a society that really embraces that and carries it to its logical conclusion? You'd find yourself uh, unwilling or unable to
0: condemn the crimes of Hitler. You know, the gratuitous murders of millions of people, or of Stalin, or
1: of Mao, or Paul Pot, or the terrorist attacks uh, from Al Qaeda. If you're a purely accepted moral relativist position, then you have no ground on which to stand to say why another person is wrong in whatever they do. There's either truth about man and the nature of what a good society and a good life is, or all decisions are made based on power. The Bible says it's written on the heart. It really is something we know. And this is what King was appealing to. It had been proposed perhaps it's written on the heart. However, an increasingly popular view, especially in evolutionary biology, is that it's written on the genes. How do we proceed from there?
0: That's a very good question these things as the questioner suggests may be
1: written on our beings by the process of evolution as we've come to learn to live together and so on good question Um, what about that argument we experience ourselves as moral agents we experience ourselves as free as able to make choices between right and wrong good and evil I'll give you an earthy example a dog makes decisions but they don't make free choices right a dog looks at the food in front of them and says there's a lion back there. Well, I won't eat it because I don't want to get eaten by the lion, okay? But no dog looks at another dog and thinks, wow, she's beautiful, but I think I'll wait till marriage, okay? That doesn't happen. <laughs> I, almost. I confess no. I've never heard that analogy. If we're talking about ethics, we have to understand that there's got to be a standard of what ought to be beyond personal survival or beyond personal autonomy, or any of the code words we hear on campuses today, or in public discourse. There's gotta be some higher value, and there'll never be an ethical standard unless there is a truth which can be known by all, a truth that cannot not be known because it's true. There's a certain way the world is made, and seeking that which is truth is the great goal of life, and out of that comes an ethical system.
0: How many of you envy me getting to follow Chuck Colson? (laughs) I am a a professor, college professor, philosophy professor. Please don't go to sleep. I would like to give you uh, the lowdown on college professors with a little limerick as I begin. So you'll really know what a college professor is all about. There once was a man named Gesser whose knowledge grew lesser and lesser. It grew so small, he knew nothing at all. And now, he's a college professor. <laughs> I don't think I'm gonna be using that. <clears throat> Good morning. I have always been a moral relativist. As far back as I can remember thinking about it, it has seemed to me obvious that the dictates of morality arise from some sort of convention or understanding among people. That different people arrive at different understandings and that there are no basic moral demands that apply to everyone. I told Chuck Olson in advance I was going to say that. <laughs> this is not, lest anyone should faint. This is not, I repeat, my own affirmation or conviction, but one with which Gilbert Hartman, a professor, philosophy professor, begins his essay titled, Is There a Single True Morality?, which was published in the book, Relativism, Interpretation, and Confrontation, published by the University of Notre Dame Press in 1989. As Professor Harman states in his essay, moral relativism has been his long-standing opinion, the offspring of what he calls non-cognitivism. It's your first vocabulary word for the day, non-cognitivism. Non-cognitivism, as Harman defines it, is the view, and I'm quoting him here, that moral judgments do not function to describe a moral reality, but they do something else, like express feelings, prescribe a course of action, and so forth, the end of Harman's quote. This position, by the way, has also been known as emotivism. Emotivism, vocabulary word number two. Moral values are expressions of emotion, according to this perspective, and nothing more. There is no truth or a moral law that we can all know. Morality is just personal feelings. Emotivism. Well, at the time of Harman's writings, and this was in the late 1980s, by the way, and to his surprise, perhaps his great surprise, the issue of whether or not there is a single true morality was an unresolved issue in moral philosophy at that time. Also, I, I would say some 20 plus years later, it must still be an unresolved moral issue, even among believing Christians. Or else I suppose we wouldn't be having this half-day conference entitled, Doing the Right Thing. Follow me? As Harman notes in his article, on the one side of this issue of whether or not there is a single true morality are relativists, skeptics, nihilists, non-cognitivists, and emotivists. On the other side of the issue, he says, there are those who believe in absolute values and a moral law that applies to everyone. The difference in these two approaches, Harmon says, derive from a difference in attitude toward science. Science is a key issue here. Relativist states must focus on finding the place of values and obligations in a world of facts, as revealed by science. And since this approach to ethics is dominated by a concern to anchor values in nature, Harmon appropriately calls this ethical position naturalism. Perhaps that's another good vocabulary term for you this morning. On the other hand, absolutists, Harmon says, tend to ignore science for the most part and concentrate on ethics proper. Harman calls this approach autonomous ethics, which he says does not ground ethics in nature alone, but rather in some other source, presumably in something that's above and beyond the natural world, something transcendent. Harmon in his article is also aware of the metaphysical view of reality or the world view issue underlying both of these ethical perspectives naturalism and ethics or naturalistic ethics and then what he calls autonomous ethics both sides in this debate, Harman says, begin at the beginning with their initial beliefs whether of the moral or non-moral kind, that's the world view issue and from there they work out their respective ethical viewpoints in a logical quest to reach what he calls reflective equilibrium, reflective equilibrium, because you want your view of reality and your view of ethics to match up, right? To be coherent. Well, Professor Harmon actually, I think, does us several favors in this essay of his, despite our disagreement with his conclusion of a non-cognitive, moralistic relativism. I think that Harmon especially helps us to understand the ultimate worldview foundations on which the questions of truth and morality term. Well, that's Harmon from the 1980s. More recently, a fellow by the name of Hubert Davis, professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and Sean D. Kelly, who is the chairman of the philosophy department at Harvard University, they have addressed what they see as the nihilistic indecision and sadness of our times. In a very recent book, titled, All Things Shining, published in January of this year by the Free Press. These two authors, Dreyfus and Kelly, assume that no one believes in universal, knowable moral truth anymore. That's just their assumption with which they begin this book. And since we have no shared set of meaningful truths or values, Dreyfus and Kelly, as authors, believe that people have to find and to create their own meanings Discovering, and here's their phrase, what they call a fully embodied, this-worldly kind of sacred. They especially note how sports, we're talking about football, basketball, and baseball, I suppose at whatever level. They especially note how sports, among many other things, have arisen in recent days to fill the spiritual void through various experiences That they call whooshing up. Whooshing up. But then there was a critique of this book written by David Brooks in the New York Times. And I think Chuck would agree with me, not everything written in the New York Times is probably all that bad. David Brooks, I really like. But David Brooks said in an op ed piece in the New York Times not too long ago, he wrote these words about the Dreyfus Kelly book. He says, I'm not sure this way of living will ever prove very satisfying to most readers. Most people, David Brooks says, have a powerful sense that there is a supreme being attached to eternal truths. And though they try, Brooks says, Dreyfus and Kelly don't give us a satisfying basis on which to distinguish between the whooshing that some people felt at civil rights rallies from the whooshing that others felt at Nazi rallies. So I think this Dreyfus Kelly book serves as contemporary documentation of the ongoing reign of moral relativism in our culture. Again, this book was published in January 2011, just a few months ago. recognizing this current state of affairs, the current pope, Pope Benedict XVI, Chuck mentioned this in his talk, he coined the expression, the dictatorship of relativism. And in a trip to Great Britain, you may have read about it in the newspaper, in the fall of 2010, just several months ago last year, the pontiff, Benedict XVI, uttered these words of warning about the Western moral situation. He said, And I'm quoting the Pope here. We are building a dictatorship of relativism that does not recognize anything as definitive and whose ultimate goal consists solely of one's own ego and desires. That's the end of the Pope's quote. The University of Southern California professor and author Dallas Willard, I have a feeling most of you have probably heard that name somewhere along the way. In a recent book of his, Knowing Christ Today, Why We Can Trust Spiritual Knowledge, he has listed several major causes for the disappearance of moral knowledge that help us to understand how a dictatorship of relativism has infiltrated our world. First thing he says is this, the failure of the church. The failure of the church to guide the development of modern societies into the ways of Jesus Christ. That's his reason number one. Number 2 the failure of modern thinkers and scholars to find a secular or naturalistic basis for something like Christian principles. Number 3 the emergence of many moralities Willard says at the hands of anthropological research the emergence of many different versions of morality. Number 3 the disappearance of the number 4 the disappearance of the human self at the hands of and he puts this word in quotation marks advances in psychology. Number five, the fact that moral standards have come to be regarded as mere displays of social and economic power and those who employ them as blind and hypocritical. Number six, the notion that morality is actually harmful to any prospect of a full and free human life. And finally, Willard's seventh reason for explaining why moral knowledge has disappeared from our society is similar to number six. Number seven, the idea that moral knowledge itself is said by many to be oppressive in curtailment of personal freedom to do as one pleases. Well I think it seems pretty obvious to me that behind these various reasons for the loss of truth and of moral knowledge in our culture today is the disappearance of God, or the so-called death of God. And this is something of long-standing recognition as French existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre honestly proclaimed decades ago. You're probably familiar with that. In a lecture of his, or an essay actually titled, Existentialism is a Humanism, or Existentialism and Humanism, Sartre writes these words. He says, God does not exist and it is necessary to draw the consequences of God's absence right to the end. Sartre was an honest existentialist. The existentialist, Sartre says, finds it extremely distressing that God does not exist. For there disappears with God all possibility of finding any values in an intelligible heaven. There can no longer, Sartre continues, there can be no longer any good, a priori, since there is no infinite and perfect consciousness, or a divine, to think it. And then Sartre goes on to quote Dostoevsky in a famous quote, if God did not exist, then everything would be permitted. And Sartre says, and that for existentialism is the starting point. God does not exist, and so we are not provided with any values or commands that could legitimize our behavior. Thus, Sartre says, we have neither behind us nor before us in any luminous realm of values any means of justification, moral justification. Sartre concludes, he says, we are left alone and without excuse. Well, Sartre, as an French existentialists candidly acknowledge that truth and morality disappear when God disappears. He was also bold to say it, I think, and very honest to do so. One thing I think we can appreciate about the existentialists. Sartre was also quite frank about the impossibility of deriving any meaningful ethic on a purely naturalistic or secular grounds that's devoid of the existence of God. Now, I think SAR could actually have gone one step farther and recognized even the impossibility of knowledge, of knowing apart from theism. As many have wondered, are human cognitive, that is our capacities to think, are human cognitive capacities and functions trustworthy if they arose by mere evolutionary accident? aimed, in our, with our cognitive capacities aimed primarily not at truth, but at survival? If human beings, in other words, are only advanced primates who happen to use cell phones, what then can human beings truly know? Evolution, in other words, calls into question the reliability of our cognitive capacities, including the views that evolutionism and its basis in naturalism are in fact the case. In other words, naturalism and naturalistic evolution just may negate naturalism and naturalistic evolution as things known with assurance. Hope you're following me okay on that. Even Charles Darwin had some doubts and some reservations about our intellectual abilities if evolution is true. In a letter that Charles Darwin wrote to a friend, he once wrote wrote these words. He says, these are Darwin's words, the horrid doubt, I guess he means by horrid, horrible, the horrible doubt always arises whether the convictions of a man's mind, which has developed from the mind of the lower animals are of any value or are trustworthy at all. So if our minds came from antecedent lower creatures, then is there any way for us to trust our minds? Would any one, and this is Darwin's word, would any one trust the convictions of a monkey's mind if there were any convictions in such a mind? I suppose we should answer Darwin's rhetorical question in the negative. C.S. Lewis, anybody ever heard of him? <clears throat> he makes a similar point in his book called Miracles. And here's what Lewis says. He says, if nature is all there is, then we have no basis for believing, really, in nature's fitness, how it all hangs together, or its uniformity. Lewis says, another worldview would be required to guarantee these convictions of nature's fitness and uniformity, and our knowledge of them. Let me quote from Lewis' book, Miracles. If all that exists, Lewis says, is nature, the great mindless interlocking event, if our own deepest convictions are merely byproducts of an irrational process, then clearly, he says, there is not the slightest ground for supposing that our sense of fitness and our consequent faith in the uniformity of nature tell us anything about a reality that's external to ourselves. Our convictions, Lewis says, are simply a fact about us, kind of like the color of our hair. If naturalism is true, he says, we have no reason to trust our conviction that nature is uniform. We can only trust that conviction if quite a different metaphysic or view of reality worldview is true. And so on this basis, on the basis of a different metaphysic, namely a Christian one, Alvin Plantinga, that some of you have heard of Alvin Plantinga, he's one of the most highly regarded American philosophers in recent days. Alvin Plantinga has argued that there is no reason to think that naturalism or nature alone has any interest in enabling conscious human beings to obtain true perceptions or correct conclusions concerning the world around them. Instead, human capability and accuracy and knowing requires a view of reality rooted in God as the creator and as the supreme knower and a view of people made as the image and likeness of God. And as Alvin Plantinga says in a recent edition of Comment magazine, and if you're not a subscriber to Comment, uh, published by Cardus, close to... Uh, up in Canada near Toronto, I suggest that you subscribe, Comment Magazine. He said this in a recent edition of Comment, one crucial aspect of being made in the image and likeness of God is our ability to know and understand. So it would seem that what we've been saying here is that naturalism negates the possibility of knowing in a significant way. On the other hand, theism fosters the, the ability and our capacity to know in a significant way. To quote Flanagan, he says, Our native human capacity to know rightly flourishes best in the context of supernaturalism in metaphysics. Another way to say that is our capacity to know flourishes best in the context of theism in worldview. He said supernaturalism in metaphysics. For indeed, what is ultimately real is determinative for ethics, Both in a theoretical and in a practical way. And another way to put that is just simply to say that worldview determines life view or your way of life. Worldview, like the German, Weltanschauung, determines Lebenschauung. Worldview determines life view or way of life. And a theistic view of reality rooted in God the Trinity along with the insight that human beings are God's image and likeness These beliefs about reality serve as the basis for the existence of truth, especially moral truth and of the human capacity to know it. To be sure, and I realize that in many ways this seminar on ethics emphasizes natural law, there is a valid natural knowledge of God and of morality that's written on the human heart. Calvin called this natural knowledge of God the sensus divinitatis, the sense of divinity. A natural law, if you like the Latin, the lex natura, the natural law, written on the heart. Romans 1 and 2 talk about it. But for the most part, we have not really thought our way carefully to these things. As a matter of fact, if we have a knowledge of those things, we tend, as Paul says, to suppress that truth in our unrighteousness. We didn't really then invent these ideas about God or morality on our own. As a matter of fact, why would human beings want to invent views of God or morality on our own? They just seem to require certain things of us. Rather, I think these ideas about God and morality are primarily the data, the facts, the information that we receive from a gracious divine revelation in which God has made himself, truth, and human identity, part of which is our capacity to know. All these things are known in his word. St. Augustine, the church father, is an ancient voice who declares in a very eloquent way our dependency on divine revelation. And theologian Carl F.H. Henry, even though he's no longer living, his more recent words spell out the ethical implications of this divine revelation. So first from St. Augustine, he says, but when we come to divine things, this faculty of reason turns away Reason cannot behold, it pants, it gasps, it burns with desire, it falls back from the light of truth, and our reason turns again to its customary obscurity, not from choice, but from exhaustion. So Augustine goes on to say, let us then hear the oracles and submit our weak human inferences to heaven. And of course, we know that God's oracles and his heavenly announcements are to be found in Scripture, the word of God, along with their significant ethical implications. Here's how Carl Henry takes this idea of divine revelation and applies it to ethics. He has stated it in these terms. He says, for historic Christianity, what is decisive for ethical concerns is the fact that the sovereign God is the self-revealed creator and judge of all and the redeemer of the penitent. Uh, Henry elaborates on this outlook in these terms. He says, Against non theistic perspectives, the biblical revelation of creation, fall, and redemption offer a compelling alternative, claiming more than just speculative human fancy or speculation. This divine revelation in Scripture sets the ethical categories of goodness and sin in a serious context. And Henry continues by saying, and through its offer of personal regeneration imparts to the penitent sinner an incomparable dynamic for moral change. I think we have to agree. I do at least. In our thoroughly subjective day and age, however, a personal theological or ecclesiastical and cultural calamity has occurred. Here's what we've done. In our culture, we have placed the revealed truths of Scripture and of the Christian faith into the realms of mere commitment, sentiment, ritual, or power. In other words, what we've done is we have repositioned Christian doctrines outside the categories of true truth or of real knowledge And such a displacement of Christian doctrines and principles into the empty category of non-cognitive commitment has reached and reaped some despicable dividends. The prophet Hosea declared about the nation of Israel in his own day, he says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, that's Hosea chapter 4 verse 6, and I think segments of the American church need to echo a similar sentiment. What is vastly important to remember, however, is that this revelation of a theistic, trinitarian reality, which is ethically decisive, is not just a matter of empty person-relative faith, but in fact, this revelation constitutes genuine knowledge of the way things actually are, as both the Old Testament and New Testaments consistently proclaim. For example, Psalm 119, verse 66. This passage of scripture identifies knowledge with God's commands. When the psalmist prays, teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, St. Paul, the Apostle Paul, teaches that new creatures, new creations in Christ are the recipients of the knowledge of God in saying, and this is the quote from the verse, for God who has said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And Peter, just one final example, Peter exhorts the reader of his second epistle to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. At the third Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization, which perhaps some of you heard about that meeting, it was held last October 16 through 25, 2010 in Cape Town, South Africa, it was a meeting I had the privilege of attending, Dr. Oz Guinness made this important point in one of the opening sessions of the Lausanne Congress, and I'm quoting Oz here, he says, I pray no one will have any doubt that truth is a foundational and decisive issue for this Lausanne Congress. And for us as evangelicals. Truth is not primarily, he said, a philosophic issue, but a theological one. God is true. His spirit, God's spirit is the spirit of truth. His word is true. And unless, he said, unless we're clear and firm about truth, this Congress, Congress might as well stop now. I think I would have added, and let's all go sightseeing. Which I did have a chance to do while I was there, by the way. I suppose his point was this. Why hold a big Congress like Lausanne, which had some four to five thousand people from all over the world, why hold a big Congress like Lausanne if Christianity is just myths and fairy tales? Whether or not truth exists and whether or not there is indeed a moral law we can all know are issues of utmost importance. Equally important, of course, is the issue of obeying what it is that we know, of putting what it is that we know into practice. After all, this half-day Saturday conference is called what? Doing the right thing. And in some ways, this practical aspect of doing the right thing, I think, might be the most difficult of all. Why would doing the right thing be the most difficult of all? Well, I think because doing the right thing will be a function of our loves. The people, the places, the things that we care about love and desire most deeply. So morality is really about the heart. On the basis of scripture, with the help of some key thinkers, especially like St. Augustine, for example, I've become convinced that we human beings, that we're really not primarily thinkers. That would be a Cartesian, that is a follower of Descartes. That would be his perspective. I think, therefore I am. And maybe not even believers. Maybe that's those two things, thinking and believing, are not our two primary characteristics. I've become convinced on the basis of Scripture and with the help of St. Augustine, that we human beings are primarily lovers. We're agents of desire. This is our most distinctive trait, especially since we're created in the image and likeness of God who is love. You know, we don't necessarily do the things that we say that we will do. We don't do the things necessarily that we think we will do. We don't even do necessarily the things that we believe in. But for the most part, most of the time, we do the things that we love, care about, and desire, things we want to do. And I think this must be the reason why somebody once said that where there's a will, there's a way, right? So if you have the desire, if you have the heart, if you have the affections, the loves, then chances are you'll figure out a way go ahead and do what it is that you want to do. Here's the way St. Augustine put it. He says, my motivations are my loves. And by my loves, I am carried wheresoever I am carried. Augustine knew very well that he was an agent of desire. A lover, primarily. If then we human beings are primarily lovers and we tend to do the things that we love, care about, and desire, then how important it is, and I'm trying to set up the next speaker here, how important it is That our loves, cares, desires, and concerns be properly and rightly ordered. Rather than disordered. If we're ever to be about the business of doing the right thing. Here's what Jesus, how Jesus put it. John chapter 14 verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I assume that the best sign of our love for Jesus is we keep his commandments. I suppose we could actually take that phrase and probably say something kind of like this, that if we don't love Jesus, we probably won't keep his commandments. And if we don't keep his commandments, we probably don't really love Jesus. So love is the ultimate test, it seems to me. Hence, in addition to knowing if truth exists along with a moral law we can all know, we also need, it seems to me, to really focus on Christian spiritual and moral formation. At the center of which, it seems, we need a proper ordering or reordering of our love. Especially in light of the first and second greatest commandments. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And by the way, Jesus did say that the whole Bible is summarized in those two commandments. And if the Bible and all the divine revelation is summarized in those two commandments, it seems to me that everything else we do is probably going to be somehow affected by and should be directed toward the fulfillment of those two commandments as well. We must be possessed, in other words, of the right kinds of affections, attitudes, and dispositions that will incline us and lead us to obey if we're ever to be found doing the right thing. C.S. Lewis once again. Both knowing the truth and doing the truth were the key themes of C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man. And in this book, The Abolition of Man, Lewis showed convincingly how, number one, moral truth existed, especially the natural law argument. How that truth was known and how we are to be about the business of conforming our souls to that moral reality rather than conforming that moral re- Conforming reality to our souls. That was his burden in the book. But Lewis was also convinced of this, that knowledge was not enough. Unless, Lewis said, there is a spirited element within us that motivates people to do the right thing, to do the truth, he said they won't budge. They may know in their head what's the right thing to do, but unless that spirited element is is present, then no action will follow. Here's the way Lewis put it, he says, the head rules the belly through the chest. That is through just sentiments and ordinate affections in the human heart. The trouble is, is that our families, friends, cultures, and educational systems produce, to use Lewis's phrase, men without chests. By which he means people without a heart of proper affections so that they might be about doing the right thing. Here's how he concludes the first lecture, which is contained in the book, Abolition of Man. He says, it's not excess of thought, but defect of fertile and generous emotion that marks men without chests. In a ghastly simplicity, he says, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests, and yet we expect of them virtue and enterprise. And then in perhaps the most compelling statement of all, he says, we castrate. And yet we bid the geldings be fruitful. Until this situation regarding the condition of the chest and the heart is changed, all our efforts at moral reformation and sociocultural transformation will, I
1: believe, be in vain. Thank you very much.